Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, July 17th, and I know what you listeners are thinking. There's a little bit of a lull here in the professional schedule, right? ATP, WTA side, we're done with the third slam. The U.S. Open Series doesn't really kick off for another week, but little did you guys realize there's still plenty of tennis to talk about, and of course, we here at the Mini Break will never sleep between world team tennis, Newport the challenger circuits uh, just all of these things kicking off we've got a bunch of fun things to talk about that being said we did not get the chance to do our weekly chat with tennis with an accents matt zemek and you know we didn't want you listeners to feel deprived so joining me today to put the final bow on what was an outstanding third grand slam of the 2019 season you know his work as an editor uh, and co-chief of tennis with an accent.com you know his book Novak Djokovic uh, making the rough pla- uh, the rough places I, I messed that up but it's okay because he will correct me as he is our mini break regular Matt Zemek welcome back to the show hey thanks Alex and you're making the rough places plain and I should add that I have a I have a collection of essays on Federer called expressly fed several years aboard the Federer Express so there's also that on the uh, accent tennis online bookstore if you're interested Oh, you know I am interested, man. Now I have to add another thing to my reading list, so I will make a little note of that. But that being said, speaking of adding to my reading list, you guys at Tennis with an Accent, so busy, you know, throughout the Wimbledon uh, fortnight, and obviously we as tennis fans, thank you guys so much for that hard work. Any articles looking back on it, you know, stick out to you as I am very proud to have written that. Well, you know, I didn't write Joe Posmanski's article on the Wimbledon final, and I tweeted that, you know, as a sports writer, there are certain articles you really wish you would have written, and you just have to tip the cap to the guy who did it. So that Posmanski article really was one of those articles. I wish I had written that, but you can check it out, JoePosmanski.com, I believe, uh, or, or just at least go to his Twitter feed. Um, but that aside, you know, I, I felt that our coverage of the Federer Djokovic final, which was done in installments, we did a instant reaction for each player on Sunday. We did a deeper reflection for each player on Monday, and we're doing big three reflections uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then Thursday, we're going to write about Dominic Team and Kay Nishikori, uh, the, the, how Wimbledon um, changed their stories. So you know, I, I just felt that our coverage of Fedor 48 uh, and everything that it meant and everything that it was, you know, I'm, I think our coverage stands up against anybody. I 100% agree with you. One thing you didn't mention that you've written this week, or you did mention, uh, but I've had the time to, you know, really get into, and I'm sure we'll talk about throughout this podcast, your big three in perspective piece, a multi-part sp- uh, series, just kind of putting into context how incredible this run from Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal has been, and we will get into all of that. Uh, but the reason, of course, I wanted to have you on, we've got a ton of Wimbledon to talk about. I want to do winners, losers, you know, biggest storylines coming out of this event that sounds good to you you ready to rock and roll let's do it well then my first question to you matt your number one winner coming out of wimbledon is novak Djokovic. all right make the case don't really need too much of an explanation but uh you know i think the finer point beyond the fact that he has 16 majors and is now very likely let's face up to this it's very likely he's going to pass roger and rafa for most majors ever by the time this this amazing era ends. I mean, obviously he could get injured. 
obviously he some something else unforeseen could happen but barring injury something crazy this is Nole's uh title to win and so we have to immediately pivot to the fact that he has beaten Federer three times in the final two rounds of a major this was the first major final doing it after being two match points down 2010 US Open semis 2011 U.S. Open semis, now this. Now, in 2010, he didn't win a major, so that didn't change the major title count, but 2011 U.S. Open and now this. So you take those two, or actually four match points Federer had. If Federer wins one in each of those matches, the major title count for Federer is 21 and it's 14 for Djokovic, a difference of seven. But those, he, those four points all went Djokovic's way, and so it's 20 to 16 instead of 21 14. Let us stop and appreciate how dramatically the history of tennis and the history of this era, called the Big Three era, has changed because of four points. Yeah. It, it, and so, and Djokovic won all of them, and that's why he's the biggest winner. And you look at, you know, I, again, this stems from your piece. You, again, big three in perspective. Statistics aren't what they seem in that part of the piece. You talked about putting uh, Federer's losses in context. You mentioned, I believe, he's now 8-4 and four in Grand Slam uh, or in Wimbledon singles finals. That now has him as having more losses than Andy Roddick and Goran Ivanisevic combined in Wimbledon finals, which, you know, you say that about Roger Federer in the piece. If you would have told us that after he had beaten Andy Roddick and I think 2012, we wouldn't have believed it. Of course, now it seems like Roger Federer in the semifinals, finals of a Grand Slam, still a staple of our tennis lives. But you mentioned it for Novak Djokovic. Uh, I think it was Jim Courier said it on the Tennis Channel stream. This is a two-slam swing, right? Uh, this is not only does he get to number 16, but to stop Federer from getting to that elusive 21. Federer's kind of like the San Antonio Spurs at this point. The fundamentals are so strong. He just knows what to do, you know, rounds one through four, how to conserve his body. Yes, uh, you know, he loses now more than he did in the 04 to 09 range, but he is 37 years old. But still, you can count on seeing him in the second half of Grand Slams. But for Novak Djokovic to get to number 16 to prevent Roger from getting to number 21, it it did feel like a monumental moment, especially given that Federer had two match points. It did, and boy, that San Antonio Spurs-Federer comparison, that's something I've never considered, but I think it's spot on. I mean, Federer is kind of the Tim Duncan of tennis. You really have to say that. You know, this quiet assassin is just, he's there, you know, at the very end every single season so i guess alex if we're gonna continue this better as spurs analogy we could say that this wimbledon final this past sunday was game six of the 2013 nba finals in which the spurs outplayed the heat most of the way had essentially the equivalent of championship point but Manu ginobili and Kawhi leonard both missed free throws in the final 30 seconds and uh, Djokovic or Ray Allen hit the incredible three-pointer from the corner uh, to send the game into overtime, Before a.k.a. tiebreaker, oh. and the Heat won the tiebreaker, a.k.a. the overtime period, and then won game seven. So, wow, you've got something started there, Alex, with this 
better Spurs comparison. I'm going to keep going. Popovich subs out Tim Duncan on the defensive possession. Federer hits the approach shot a little bit too close to the center of a court. There's an unforced error that you don't expect out of Roger Federer. Yes, you mentioned Djokovic coming up with the forehand pass, the Ray Allen shot. I love that. But what I also love about this continuing analogy is that it implies Roger Federer's got another push in him, that this is going to give him that extra kick for at least one more run. And as a fan, we would hope to see him do it at, say, the 2020 Wimbledon. That would be awesome uh, in the way San Antonio comes back and wins the next year. But just to stick on Novak Djokovic, look, we're, we we said Novak Djokovic is the winner, and of course we go on a tangent about Federer and mainstream tennis fans. It seems to be one of the things that keeps coming up is this everyone hates Djokovic, everyone's rooting for Federer, and one of the you know quintessential moments of photo that I hope will last in tennis history is the smirk. And smirk is a little rude, but just the face Djokovic makes when he's looking at his player box after he wins that final point, shakes Federer's hands, just the confidence in his eyes. And I'm sorry for swearing, Matt, but he just has this look on his face. He's, yeah, I know who all you fans were cheering for. And guess what? F*** you. Like, I am still the guy. This is my stadium, my kingdom. And yeah, that, that performance the way he fought off the match points, Federer hits two serves to the Djokovic forehand. That's the sort of thing you'd write up in the playbook if you're Federer. You know, one of them, uh, Djokovic, yes, Federer makes an unforced error with his forehand, but Djokovic gets that low and deep at Federer's feet, about as good of a return as you can hope for. The other one, you know, Djokovic hits a slice return and then that forehand pass. You know, if you're Federer, you avoided the Djokovic forehand or the Djokovic backhand, but still, Novak comes up with the goods. He plays three outstanding tie breaks in the final. Yeah, he doesn't have the Bautista, uh, you know, Bautista Gute in the semifinal. I'm sure looking back uh, three years from now, you'd be like, really? RBA made that semifinal? But of course, pushing context, given the year RBA has had, it really was an incredible run from Novak Djokovic. Absolutely. I, you know, one one insight that I haven't mentioned in any of my columns or on any of the other podcasts or radio availabilities that I've done the past 48 hours. So I, I'd be lying if I said I saved it for you, but you've helpfully, <laughs> you've helpfully made me remember this point. Part of the magic of this era, as it relates to Novak Djokovic, he has confirmed, he has affirmed, you know, cemented and punctuated his greatness against Rafa but he has learned what he is capable of against Federer. That is the distinction for Djokovic in terms of the meaning of his rivalry against Federer and the meaning of his rivalry against Nadal. Uh, let's start with the 2010 U.S. Open. You know, he, he realized when he played Nadal well in that final, and of course that, that is the best I've ever seen Nadal play. No one was going to beat Nadal at that tournament, not Federer if they had met in the final. Nadal just absolutely dominated that tournament, and yet Djokovic was still able to take a set off Rafa, that level of Rafa, in the final. That moment affirmed Djokovic and his ability to realize what he was capable of. It was the previous match for Djokovic at that 2010 U.S. Open when he realized what he could do. Rafa was the confirmation in the final, but the Federer semifinal, when Djokovic swung for the fences... Uh, it down it. down four five fifteen forty in that fifth set. Mm-hmm. That was when Djokovic's greatness was born. Now, obviously, the 2010 Davis Cup also had a role. Also, the the first round escape against Victor Troiki 
at that 2010 U.S. Open. He was down two sets to one, down a break in the fourth, got out of that one. That also becomes one of the seminal matches in tennis history. But really, that semifinal experience against Federer, the first of the three times that he stayed two match points in one of the final two rounds of a major against Federer, that was the eye-opener. And then he played Nadal well. And then if you go through the rest of this decade, you'll see other instances of Federer, a Federer match showing Djokovic what he could do. And then later, he got against Nadal, and he confirmed that he really could be that great. So, for example... Uh, the, the, two, that, well, the 2011 semifinal at the U.S. Open against Federer, and that carried into the final against Nadal. So eye-opener, confirmation. Eye-opener, Federer, confirmation against Nadal. Then 2014 Wimbledon, after the painful loss against Rafa at Roland Garros, when he thought he could finally rope in Nadal and, and stop him in a, in a Roland Garros final, he goes to Wimbledon and he beats Federer in that five-setter that's when the relationship with Boris Becker became cemented. That's when there was total trust, total buy-in after that Wimbledon victory. And, of course, we remember Boris Becker saying so many times over the years, the fifth set's not about the tennis, it's about the heart. So Djokovic's heart grew a few sizes in that 2014 Wimbledon final. He carried that through 2015 and specifically beating Nadal in straight sets at Roland Garros, and we know that Nadal wasn't really himself in 2015, but nevertheless, imagine a world in which Djokovic had not won that 2014 Wimbledon final. Would he have rocked and rolled in 2015 to the extent that he did? I highly, highly doubt it. So the moments in which Djokovic has punctuated his greatness came against Rafa, but the moments that opened his eyes and really renewed his confidence whenever it was uncertain or flagging, they came against Federer. So it's it's fascinating that we came full circle in a sense. Djokovic playing really one of his worst major finals uh, in recent years. His uh, 2018 major finals were both dominant. His 2019 Australian Open final was especially dominant. And then weirdly, it just wasn't all there today. And yet he called forth that very familiar ability against Federer to say, you know what, I'm, it's not my best day, but I can still do this. And so this is just likely to propel him to even bigger and better things. I think if you asked 100 tennis pundits or commentators and put them all in a room, and if you ask them point blank, is Djokovic going to win the next two majors on hard courts to get to 18 before he turns 33, I think a majority would say yes. I I am in the bandwagon of saying yes, and my two follow-ups to that, and then we can move on to our next winner and loser. And by the way, one of my winners was the big three in general. I think we've kind of covered why they were all winners this weekend. Uh, that Federer-Nadal match, obviously sensational, particularly at the end. Federer misses that overhead, and you're like, oh my God, is Federer going to blink? And then, of course, he comes back and wins the match. Just sensational tennis. But, you know, to your point, in the press conference after the final, Djokovic, when referring to this Federer match, he called it the most mentally strenuous match he's ever played in. And to your specific point about the difference between Federer and Nadal, he said, look, my 2012 Australian Open final against Nadal probably the most physically demanding match of my career but this was the most mentally demanding match and I think what exactly what you just said speaks to that point that you know because Roger Federer attacks you in so many different ways you have to you know stay awake you have to be on your toes you can't float balls back in the center and expect to get away with it and to see Djokovic have that sort of uh, wherewithal resilience to come back the way he did 
just sensational. Now, to the greatest of all time argument, I don't even care about it really because, look, all these guys are incredible tennis players. But, and, you know, my mother always said anything after the word but doesn't really count, uh, or anything before, just throw it out. Yeah, you you can't deny Novak Djokovic, given the level he's displayed, he's won what now? I think five out of the past seven majors. He's definitely the favorite entering the U.S. Open. Yeah, it's hard to deny he'd be the favorite entering Australia as well. I don't know how he doesn't get to 20, and that's the biggest—that's why he's such a big winner is because of the guys, with all due respect to Federer and Nadal, the thing he has on them, winning records against both of his biggest rivals, and I like to throw Murray in there, so winning records against all three, winning, you know, most master career titles, uh, all of these things breaking line. If he can get the most slam titles, it's going to be hard to suggest anyone other than him is the best men's player of all time. I would now, uh, now a lot of people will agree with you on that, and I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you. I'm just going to make a different point. I think the thing that would cement for many the idea that Djokovic is the best ever, and I think right now the argument's already there for him to make, but the thing that would cement it most, Alex, if he beats Rafa in a Roland Garros final next year or the year after that. You know, if he does that, then he really has everything, because that's the one thing that Federer didn't do. And if Djokovic checks off that particular box, even more than most majors, so let's let's imagine a hypothetical where you know Nadal plays till you know he's 37 or 38, and he wins uh, three more French Opens, but but Djokovic gets him once, and we get like a 22-22 tie. So Djokovic wouldn't have to have the all the all around major title lead. But if he can say that he beat Rafa on Chakrier in a final, I mean, that that to me is the ultimate trump card in, in the GOAT conversation. So where I slightly disagree with you, given that Djokovic is, what, one of three players, technically two in reality, to have beaten uh, Rafa Nadal at Wimbledon. I think he lost to Soderling twice, but one of them was a withdrawal. Um, I mean, Djokovic does have that win over Rafa at Roland Garros, but to do it in a final, certainly next level. But to me, the pinnacle of the—and I'm biased, so again, I'm going to say it— Big Four era was the 2012 Australian Open semifinals and onwards, which is where I saw some of the best tennis, and in my opinion, the best tennis I've ever seen in my life. I would make the case that the Djokovic-Murray five-set semifinal was actually the better of the two matches, but the way Djokovic beat Murray then went on to beat Nadal. I mean, he's just had stretches of tennis the way he began that 2011 opening season uh, from ball one through that French Open semifinal. The stri- it's just the brilliance we've seen from him. It's it, it never ceases to amaze me. It doesn't, and I think we just have to nail down the point that you know, all three of the all of the big three are incredible fighters, incredible competitors, just the absolute highest level. They've all gotten themselves out of trouble. They have all won improbable titles. They have all come up with these fairy tale endings. But among the three, you know, in the matches that went especially long, either in terms of sets and, and or in terms of hours, the really, really long matches. Djokovic has won most of them against both Rafa and Roger. You know, Djokovic won that 2018 Wimbledon semifinal, which was, I believe, around five hours and 20 minutes. Uh, the 2012 Australian Open final, as you just mentioned, uh, the the other epics against Federer, uh, including the five-setter in 2014. 
Um, you know, so Rafa had the 9-7 in the fifth in the 2013 Roland Garros semis, but that, you know, among the five setters that all these guys have played, uh, the 2013 Roland Garros semifinal is the exception. It's not the rule. You know, when the, when the battles have been true, 50-50 contests deep into a fifth set, who's the guy who's won the most? Djokovic, and that's why he's going to have the most majors. So, you know, part of what I alluded to in my Sunday, you know, my immediate game over um, story at Tennis with an Accent, uh, ac- TennisAccent.com, uh, what, I, I made the statement that Djokovic is probably going to be regarded as the GOAT by one point. I think, I think that in many ways is the best way to sum up not only Sunday's match, but also the era, that you can clearly argue that Djokovic is the best ever, just acknowledge how slim the margin was, one or two points. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Well, I think we've done enough big three, and by the way, that felt very refreshing. I needed that sort of rant to get that off. I've There's been a lot of Djokovic and Del Federer talk, so it feels. I feel like now all of the points are clear. But that being said, let's switch gears a, a little bit. Your, one of your biggest losers from the Fortnite. Nick Kyrgios. Really? Absolutely. Oh, all right, Absolutely. Give it to me. Because he needs to get his butt into the top 15 so that he's not playing <laughs> Rafael Nadal in the second round. And I know that I made that point earlier, but it's definitely worth pounding uh, with a hammer because sometimes there are points you need to just hammer home. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I. You know how I feel about Curious. Again, we also did this. That's what I was going to say. I'm going to try and steer away from Coco Goff, who's an obvious winner, and we talked about her at length um, last week. So, listeners who want to hear more on that, go check that out. I'll, obviously, you guys covered her at tennis with an accent as well. well, are we, well Alex, are we doing just overall winners, losers, or are we, are we segmenting ATP and WTA? No, I, I want both. I want both, just overall. Okay, I thought we were going through ATP, so... Oh no! Don't don't worry about it. I'm sure off the top of your head. Look, Matt. If there's a if there's a second winner behind Novak Djokovic, it has to be Simona Halep. Oh, of course. Then let well, real quick on the curious thing. Yes, you're right. It is incredibly frustrating to see that talent, the display, the entertainment that was the Rafael Nadal match. Only to know that we're not going to hear from him probably unless it's something stupid until the U.S. Open. That being said, I mean. I suppose anytime curious believers like myself get get a whiff of hope, that's a good thing writ large. It's always good to talk about Nick Kyrgios's tennis and not Nick Kyrgios other stuff. Absolutely. That is a step forward. But I mean he needs to now be part of that. And you know, when he tweeted, please win, Roger, before the uh Wimbledon final, that no bueno. That that's not gonna get it done. You know, he needs he needs to put his head down and, and as the Australian old school guys would say, put in the hard yards. <laughs> and uh, when you when you tweet out that kind of B, when you tweet out that kind of BS, that is not the Aussie old school. And he, get, he needs to get a little Rod Laver in him. He needs to get a little Lou Hode and Ken Rosewall in his veins. And when, until we see that, until we see proof of that, you know, I'm I'm not going to pay too much attention to him. I know Nick Kyrgios is a Celtics fan, but that was a little more Boston than Australia. With all due respect, I'm all team accent. Uh, no, I, I completely agree with you. Again, I, I it, the, the reason why I imagine, I mean, it's clear why you have him in the losers because he is so good and it's just put yourself in a position to do that in the fourth round, in the quarterfinals. 
not in a second round match. So I agree with you. But yeah, let's transition back to the winners then real quick. Simona Halep, who obviously one of the winners of this week, someone we have to talk about her performance in the final against Serena, a 6-2, 6-2 win. Um, Also kind of transitions into one of my other winners as well, a piece you wrote on TennisAccent.com about the scheduling and why Wimbledon looks so good. It you know it kind of helps for the men doubles final contrasted with uh, the women's singles final. We got you know our six hours of tennis in, so it ended up being all good. But for Simona Halep to not only win a Wimbledon, uh, which coming off of the fact that she, her only other Grand Slam had been at the French Open, always rare to see players to su- succeed on surfaces both like clay and grass, which are so different. And she just got better and better and better throughout the week, and she just took it to Serena in that final. She did. And, you know, one has to remember that Halep, first off, lost her first three major finals. That's a pretty big burden to carry. It's a burden that a lot of athletes would allow to overwhelm themselves. But Halep has managed to look at those three losses, find the lessons in them, and win her next two major finals. And here's another relevant detail. Each of her first four major finals, the one win against Sloane Stevens, and then the three losses which preceded, they were all complicated three-set matches. So I gave Halep a legitimate chance in this match. I thought Serena would win, but I gave Halep a, a definite chance. I, mean, I thought it was maybe like a, a 55-45 kind of match. Um, but the one thing I definitely didn't expect was a straight set demolition. Um, it's it's amazing that at a Wimbledon, which paralleled 2014 on the men's side, Djokovic and Federer playing a five-setter that had tiebreakers in the first and third sets, we also had a women's final, which paralleled 2014. In 2014, we had Petra Kvitova steamrolling Eugenie Bouchard in a letter-perfect display of tennis in 55 minutes. Here we had Simona Halep steamrolling Serena in 56. Uh, Very similar in that the winning player was just absolutely lights out. The loser couldn't really have done all that much about it. Serena could have done more than Bouchard did five years ago against Kvitova because Serena has the best serve in the history of women's tennis. Uh, But as soon as that serve wasn't working enough to get cheap points, her first ace didn't come until the second set. Uh, As soon as Serena didn't get cheap points on serve. It was pretty much one-way traffic. And so it's a marvel not just that Halep won, but the way she did it, that after all these complicated three-set matches, she plays her best major final at Wimbledon against Serena? No one, no one anticipated this. And so as a result, Halep not only goes from one major to two, which is really almost as significant as going from zero majors to one. Those are are both total career changers in terms of perception. So not only does she go from one to two, which is a mammoth in itself, but she does it on a different surface at a different major tournament under a coach other than Darren Cahill. It is total validation of everything Simona Halep is as a tennis player. it's, it's, uh, It's hard to fully state just how much this victory means for her. And what's so funny is it seemed like in the build-up to this Wimbledon, you and I, we talked about the young guns, right? Ashley Barty, 23 years old, Naomi Osaka, 2021, obviously Amanda Nisimova, Sophia Kendon, uh, Benchich, Vondrasova, the list can go on and on of these young players there. And then you look at Simona Halep, who I believe is 28 years old, 
And it's just like you forget players like her, players like Pliskova, players like you know Sloane Stevens, even Madison Keys, because it just feels like she's been around now long enough. They still have these sort of runs in them. And for Simona Halep in particular, again, one of my favorite articles you wrote and you referenced it in one of your other ones this week, uh, putting losses in perspective. She is one of those few players in an era when so, uh, it's so, f- uh, so many players are breaking through, but when they break through so few and far between a semifinal, uh, semifinal appearance here, a championship there. Simona Halep has been consistent since 2017, right? She's made now, I think, four major finals since that moment. She's won two of them. Her best tennis is right now. This is a player in the prime of her career, and you just you can't forget that here on in, you know, the next, let's say, five grand slams if she's healthy and she's, you know, lining up in the main main singles draw. Absolutely. And let's in terms of like a larger historical perspective, here's what's on the table for Halleck in the next at the U.S. Open and and really in 2020. If she can win just even one major in these next five major tournaments, carrying us through the 2020 season, what that will show me is that her career will empirically clearly be better than Garbina Muguruza because Let's note the parallels between Muguruza in 2016 and 2017 and Halep in 2018 and 2019. So Muguruza and Halep, both in 2016 and 18, the even-numbered years, they won Roland Garros for their first major title. Then they both went to Wimbledon a month later in those even-numbered years and lost in the first week. And then they get to Roland Garros the next year, the odd-numbered year, Muguruza 2017, Halep 2019, and they both fell short of expectations. Muguruza losing that emotional match on long run to Kiki Mladenovic uh, being bothered by the French crowd, uh, and then Halep with that limp performance against, yes, an inform Amanda Anasimova, but nevertheless, Halep didn't make the adjustments one might have expected on clay. So they both fell short of expectations at Roland Garros the year after winning it. And then they go to Wimbledon without expectations and they win Wimbledon for their second major. So Muguruza, after that second major at Wimbledon, when she beat Venus, you know, we all thought, you know, this is such a big league talent. She's won a second major. You know, she confirmed her her quality and then she hasn't done diddly squat since then. So Halep has a chance to jump into that space and say, hey, I can continue to build on what I have done, whereas Muguruza and also to a degree Sloane Stevens, who really has a ton of pressure coming up at the U.S. Open. It's, a, it's just a monster tournament for her and Madison Keys. So Halep has this chance to win a third major, which would tie Kerber. And then if she can get a fourth, you know, the, and then she's getting into Sharapova territory. So really in these next five majors, it's an enormous opportunity. Not, not high pressure because, you know, Halep now has relieved so many burdens and she's answered so many questions. She can now be free to say, hey, I've made my own statement. I don't need to listen to any of you nattering nabobs of negativism in the American press, people who question my attitude for no legitimate reason. She can now just go click, clack and take the court these next five majors through 2020. And if she wins even one, it's an enormous statement. If she wins two. It's an enormous statement, uh, exponentially multiplied. So just a big window of opportunity in the next several majors for Simona Halep to dramatically elevate herself in the history of women's tennis. 
I completely agree with you. And look, Jonathan Kelly and I are going to do a fun segment talking about players we think uh, should be in the Hall of Fame, who's got arguments, players we think shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame coming up. So listeners, be on the lookout for that. That's going to be fun. But, you know, hyperbole sells, but... Pam Shriver on ESPN talking about Halep's title. She says, look, at this point, it's going to be very hard to deny Simona Halep a place in the Tennis Hall of Fame, and I, I don't know how you can disagree with her. She's been world one number one. She's made you know multiple Grand Slam finals and won multiple Grand Slams. Uh, I just such an incredible player, especially you know she's in the prime of her career now, so there still is many opportunities for her ahead. Yeah, I, I, you can't come out of this Wimbledon and not say she's one of the biggest winners. Absolutely, and the fact that she's had the world uh, year-end number one, you know, that really adds to her Hall of Fame credentials in ways that Muguruza, you know, as a comparison, also with two majors, can't quite offer. Yeah, I agree. And look, I might have to send you a few texts before I do this exercise with Jonathan because. I've got some takes. So I have this whole thing about, do you have a five-year stretch in the top five, you know, five years in a row in the top five? I think that sort of sustained excellence is really a litmus test of, okay, now you're in the conversation for Hall of Fame. What else did you do outside of that? I, or maybe, you know, if it's, I say five years in the top five, or maybe it's eight years in the top 10, those are sort of the opening criteria for me. And yes, yeah, Simona Halep is well on her way to establishing that sort of run. She's been so good now over the past four uh, years you imagine it's going to continue moving on. I I don't know how you're going to deny that case, but all right. Again, let's switch gears a, a, again. Another loser from you, Matt. One has to remember the, the article that I wrote during the first week of Wimbledon. It's something that you cited on the show that we did a week ago. Uh, I wrote about how we view tennis losses, and I cited Angelique Kerber's loss to Lauren Davis in the second round. And I gave Kerber a pass for that. I mean, at least, you know, I showed leniency toward her because she has three shiny major trophies, more than Azarenka, more than Muguruza, more than Kuznetsova. When you, the more you accomplish, the more the occasional stumble is allowable. Whereas if you're in Bencic's situation, never having made a major semifinal, you know, being a comfortable and good grass player, you know, needing to make a run at Wimbledon to, to show just how elite you are, and at least to the point where you can earn a fourth-round date with world number one, Ash Barty. Boy, you're, you're up three loves. You have a great point against Allison Risk in the third set. You've got to close that one down. And so Benchich, it's, it's a real missed opportunity, and it's a stinging loss because she hasn't yet proven herself at the majors. For anyone who has proven themselves at the majors, you know, again, you can, you're allowed to lose in my book in the sense that, you know, I will be lenient, I will be forgiving. But when you haven't done it and you let a lead slip away like that, it, it's, it's a very damaging loss. So Bencic has a lot to overcome uh, at the U.S. Open. No, uh, to add on to that, I would throw in Karolina Pliskova in that similar regard of given that she hasn't uh, proven herself yet at the latest stages of a major, hasn't gotten over that hurdle. Her 13-11 in the third set round of 16 loss to Karolina Mukova uh, was equally painful for her because the draw on the bottom half had really opened up for her in a way that I remember both of us saying she is one of these favorites at entering Manic Monday. You know, I believe she didn't lose, uh, she lost one set on her way to that fourth round in a three-set match against C, although she, you know, the doubles champ 
champion, obviously. She had been playing some outstanding tennis on the grass. And just to lose to a younger player from your country in the fashion that she did for both players, it just felt a little bit like a wasted opportunity. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And, you know, we, we obviously Federer failed to serve out Djokovic at 8-7-40-15. But, you know, Federer has served out matches, big matches, important matches, matches against elite players so many times. Carolina Pliskova is still looking for that first major. So she failed to serve out Mukova twice. She had two chances to do that. So, you know, she, she, she failed on her first, got a second chance, still couldn't do it. So, you know, when you've won 20 majors and when you've won zero majors, the, the verdict that we apply to failures to serve out matches and also the quality of opponent involved, you know, it makes a difference in terms of how severely we rate these losses. While we're talking about players who were losers at Wimbledon and who failed to serve out matches, Milos Raonic, no, he had a chance to serve out Guido Pea and could not do it. Didn't play an absolutely terrible game but didn't play well either. He did make two unforced errors uh, to enable Paya to get back into that match in the fourth set. So, I mean, Pliskova and Raonic, two great servers. They, they get so much from their serve, serving on grass against players they generally would and should be, and they didn't close the sale. Those are definitely two big losers from Wimbledon. Probably throw Daniil Medvedev in that group as well, right? He had so many chances against Goffin in that third round, and for him to not be able to serve it out, uh, he gets broken, you know, loses that fifth 7-5. I mean, that one's got to be painful as well. I agree with you. There were... well, yeah, well, so Alex, you know, if we're going to just say that the big three are winners from Wimbledon, we have to say that ATP next gin past the alcohol uh, is, a, is a huge loser. Perfect. So let's get into that now. Real quick, I'm going to give the quick antithesis. Two next-gen guys real quick. Hubie Hercatch, my man from Poland, and Ugo Umber from France, who, yeah, disappointing straight set loss uh, in the fourth round to Djokovic, but the way he got through FAA, the way he got through, I believe, Dimitrov in that first round, or maybe it wasn't Dimitrov, maybe it was Monfils, um, just an impressive run from those two guys. But, yeah, Zverev with the first-round loss, Tsitsipas with the first-round loss. Team's a little bit old for this group, but first-round loss for him. You know, none of these guys advanced past the fourth round, and to not see them in that final, you know, weekend, uh, weekend-and-a-half stretch, it's just devastating for all that the next-gen has done at the ATP on the ATP level in 2019. Another lacking result from them, I suppose, at the majors. Absolutely, and you know, Hubie Hercotch, I mean, now he now he showed a lot to me against Djokovic. The way he played those first two sets, obviously, he ran out of steam, as a lot of the younger guys do because they're not used to the prolonged battle. But you know, he he has so much game, I and mean, we saw that in the first two sets. So he was actually a bright spot, as was Umber. Um, but you know, the the point I have to circle back to about the next gen. Well, wait, real quick. Alcohol, I, I need to work this uh, this Hubie Hercatch thing because as a fellow pole, I've got to ride with my guys. So there are a lot of loose comparisons of he reminds me of Andy Murray thrown out there casually on tennis Twitter, and it's way too soon to say things like that. But anytime a six six guy can move and has the tools from the ground and obviously he's got the serve as well, you just have to take notice, right, given the way the modern game is played? Well... Okay, so you don't like comparisons, but I'm going to give you one anyway because no, to me, it's I, very I like them. I like them. Just very an, so Andy Murray, to, that's my guy. Well, 
to me, the Hubie Hercatch comparison is Robin Soderling. Wow. Long, long arms, long arms, hits a huge ball, big take back. I, I see stylistically, Interesting. in terms of the shape of his shots and the shape of his body and how he moves around the court, Soderling is the clear comparison to me. It's, it's almost eerie to me, personally, how much there's a Soderling flavor to Hercatch. I love that. Some of the ones I like, and again, it may not be to the extent, but just the style they play. Christian Guerin, Stan Wawrinka, the serves, just the way they strike the ball, very similar in my mind. But that one, Soderling and Hercatch. You're right, because this, the Hercatch forehand, it's got some whip to it. He certainly gets the racket back there. But the way he, I mean, uh, I will love Soderling for the way he beat Nadal and was like, he, he reacted exactly how the average Joe would. He was like, yeah, that's right. I beat Rafa the French. I'm just as shocked as you. Let's party it up. Uh, of course, he follows it with two French Open finals, but I like it. I like it. I mean, the, the you know, Hubie comes out of this and it's just another one of those guys you say, oh yeah, sure. Top 25 in his future. Why not? Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Federer and the Spurs earlier. we got to have Hubie Brown calling a Hubie Hurtock. <laughs> oh, now, he hits a forehand down the line. And you, you've got to have that. No, you know Hubie will just be like, well, I love Hubie Hurtock. And then just, not, you know, he's got a great first name. And then it's just nothing. Uh, it's just, uh. But yeah, I'm I'm all in. Uh, I, I like that comparison. But I didn't mean to and, cut you and off. It's interesting. It's also interesting that we're we're talking about two young men, Hubert and Umber. <laughs> and we've got a case of the H's. Oh, well, you know, we could we could call him, you know, Hubert. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Hubert. They've got to play some doubles, right, for that to happen. And Hubert and Air Bear. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, it's, I'm, I'm over bear, and then we've got Kiki Bear Tans, of course. Uh, we had to get some. We had to get some levity in here at some point. <laughs> serious matches and tracking players' reputations and, and assessing their legacies like it's like life and death. No, so. Carolina Pliskova is going to hear this and go, "Oh no, it's just a bear fest." I totally get it. Like I'm not part of that crew. Yeah, but. That being said, speaking of ripping on people, the next gin, the drink is poured, we're at, you know, the cup is not half full, it's half empty. Why do you feel that way, Matt Zemeck? Because they're not getting to quarterfinals against the big three, which is really how you learn. Uh, and, and, and listeners of the mini break have heard me say a few weeks ago, you know, that Delpo, this is how Delpo made his climb, that he, he got his butt kicked, three love and love by Federer at the 2009 Australian Open, he got back to a semifinal at the French, and then he was ready to graduate, uh, get his diploma at the U.S. Open. So you just you need to get in the arena against these guys in order to learn how to beat them. You got you're going to take three, four, five, six losses against them, uh, you know, while they're while they're still at this elite level. But you got you got to play them. You can't win if you don't play. So the, the next gen will will put the alcohol aside and will become sober when they get to these quarterfinals and maybe a semifinal and they play the big three they go to graduate school they're going to get smacked down by the professor early on but if they keep doing their homework and they take notes maybe they'll be able to pass the exam in 2021 or maybe early 2022 so that's why they're behind schedule they need to get to these quarters and semis at the really big uh, five-set tournaments to really understand what it takes. 
Max Rothman and I are recording a, a uh, next-gen ATP top 10 seasons of 2019 and giving our kind of status report big picture on them thus far later this week. So be on the lookout for that. But yeah, especially Stefano Tsitsipas, the way he, uh, what was it, semifinals of the Australian Open, fourth-round loss to Warinka in the way that he did. Uh, you certainly expected more from him given the weapons he has. One would think grass would be a good surface for him. But again, this in uh, you talk about putting la- losses in context. For a lot of these young guys, even for Tsitsipas, I think this is, what, his seventh, eighth, maybe ninth major overall. So he doesn't have a ton of reps still in terms of just playing at Wimbledon, I mean, junior slams aside, but it's a completely different thing in my opinion. Uh, for Zverev, obviously those excuses get a little thin. For Medvedev and Kachanov, both had winnable matches and just, you know, came short. But then, you know, you look for Kachanov the way he lost to RBA, given that RBA, the semifinalist, a little more excusable for Medvedev. He had Gofen on the ropes. But yeah, it's at a certain point. I saw in your article you said, I think it was Tsitsipas and team are the only non-big three guys who could threaten at the 2018 U.S. Open. We forgot Borna George didn't play this Wimbledon given his level. I think you have to throw him in the mix. Kachnov, Medvedev, the way they are physically. I love them. And, you know, given everyone's so worn out come U.S. Open, I think they will be two guys who are able to stand that test of time. Um, but, oh, FAA, a guy we haven't mentioned, his third round loss to Bear, you know, disappointing, but given that it, he got his first, you know, main draw Grand Slam win in this Wimbledon, again, it's all about context. But yeah, they left a lot on the table. They did, uh, but just in terms of Felix, that last note, I mean, you know, so many people want to see Felix succeed, and I think if you took an informal poll of tennis fans, you know, whatever the sampling might be, uh, I think that Felix is really the single most popular uh, player under 25 years of age, or at least men's player. Uh, I think he's more popular than Zverev, more popular than Tsitsipas. I mean, everybody seems to love Felix, and because everybody loves Felix, everybody so desperately wants to see him become this, the next radiant superstar. In time, he very well might be, but the expectations right now are so high, and that's why I took the time after the loss to Umber to say that was not a disappointing loss. We cannot be in the business of saying that an 18-year-old had a a disappointing loss at a major tournament. These these are parts of a growth process. When we get to the point where you're 21, 22 years old, and where you've, you've, you've regularly announced yourself in Masters, Semis, and Finals. I know Felix made the Miami Semis, but you know that was one tournament. Uh, you know, until players accumulate full seasons of results, especially at the important tournaments, it is still just all a learning process. And, and until they go through whole cycles where the tour gets used to them, where they become true targets, only then you know, can uh, expectations really become more solidified and established. But right now, this is still training wheel time. And just to offer a comparison to Felix in terms of what it is to have a disappointing year or a disappointing tournament or a disappointing match loss, look at his, uh, his friend and fellow Canadian, Denis Shapovalov. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what a disappointing season looks like. That that's a, this is a disappointment that he you know he went through a 2018 season after his 2017 breakout in Montreal against Rafa and, and others. Um, you know, 2018 was a year in which no one should have expected anything from Chapo. 
But then 2019, okay, so you got your butt kicked in 2018 as expected. You know, nothing wrong with that. You're going, you're going through hard knocks. Uh, so 2019, okay, let's now see some adjustments. Let's now see some growth. And we haven't seen any of it. So that's what a disappointment looks like. If we're being disappointed about FAA at age 18, we really have lost our, our perspective and our understanding of how athletes grow and mature and develop. I, I agree with everything you said there. Uh, you know, we had mentioned Shapovalov, another guy, Diminuer, uh, Fritz, Opelka, Tiafo, so many talented next-gen players. It's going to be very hard for any of these players to stick out and make themselves known, uh, especially at these slams, given, you know, there's only 16 spots in the fourth round, and you've got a lot of old guys as well, the big three on top of them in contention who are hungry for those. So, yeah, it becomes that much harder to stand out. The pressure becomes that much more intense to secure one of those spots and that's what's going to lead you know to a fantastic uh, hard court stretch because there's a lot of players a lot of opportunities to play and it's gonna be very fun to monitor I'm gonna steal one here I'm gonna go with one of my losers from the tournament Nicholas Mahout and I say this lovingly but just think about how this Fortnite went for him his partner Davis Cup fellow champion Grand Slam fellow champion guy who's he's gone through all of his doubles success with Pierre who's their bear says you know I'm done with doubles I'm gonna focus on my singles a little bit not play Wimbledon Mahout then sees Air Bear come in because Andy Murray asked him to play. So right off the bat, you're betrayed, you're feeling slighted. And then what does Mahout do? He uses that at motivation to get all the way to that fifth set of the doubles final, only to get pegged a bunch of times in the row and end up falling just a little bit short to Far and Cabal, who are probably two of the winners from this week as well. But just a devastating end to the Fortnite for Mahout. I imagine this one hurts a lot. Uh, it'll hurt mentally, and he also just got banged up physically. I mean, you remember he took that overhead in the first set, so he he literally got knocked down. I mean, the ball hit him in the forehead, and he was tended to by a trainer for several minutes. And then he got hit. hit then his privacy was invaded in the fifth set. <laughs> so he got hit high, and he got hit low, and he lost a five setter. And he got took, and know, he got very, hit very in the middle. Time. He got hit in the gut from Air Bear, and he was sick during the week. So it's just like, oh. Yeah, other than that, it was a great it was a great Fortnite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Other than that, he got the paycheck, so in the end I suppose he's the he one that's the laughing. Check. Yes. Yeah, there's always a redeeming factor in the end. But okay, again, I want to be conscious of your time, so give me one more loser and then we'll end with one more winner. Yeah, so Madison Keys. Uh, Wimbledon, she she's twenty four and Wimbledon is the only major where she hasn't made the semis. How the heck is that possible? Let's, right. Could not let's, agree more. Let, let's, let's realize that, you know, whereas Carolina Pliskova is 6-1, that's a little harder for her to bend to retrieve the slices, you know, the, the well-documented reason why, you know, off-pace players such as Rybarikova and others have flummoxed her in the past at, at, at Wimbledon. You know, whereas you can understand why Pliskova struggles, Keys is 5-10, so she's much more centered low to the ground, she, you know, grass has that low hitting zone. It should not, this this surface should not be a problem surface for her. And yet it continues to be that way. And it's just a lack of problem solving. She is so impatient. You know, Coco Goff at 15 already has more patience on the court than Madison Keys does. And that's just not acceptable. And, you know, if someone on Keys' team in the aftermath of, you know, her divorce from Lindsay Davenport 
Someone needs to get through to her. And, uh, you know, in terms of player, I, I alluded to this earlier, in terms of players who have the most pressure on them going to the Women's U.S. Open, it's Keys and Stevens. Yes. Keys and Stevens have the most pressure. They, it is such a proving moment for both of them in their careers. Uh, if they don't, you know, make a really deep run, talking at least finals or, you know, semi semifinals, absolutely. But generally, if they don't make the final, you know, then, that, then 2019 at the majors will just be a total washout for both. Completely agree with you. You could throw keys in that conversation of, as you mentioned, Pliskova, Benchich, and people who had opportunities and just could not get the job done. Um, another, my last loser as well, and I say this somewhat half-heartedly, Matteo Berrettini, who got all of us excited with his run-up performance, a title, a final, uh, it makes the fourth round after a five-set win over Schwartzman in the lead-up to his match with Fed, and then to quote him, got, you know, we had to ask Federer at the end how much was for the lesson, uh, that one hurt a little bit, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with your point, I guess, we'll end here, Our, your, your final winner, Matt? Um, let's say Barbara Stutzova uh, for, for, the, for the sensational semifinal run at age 33, making your first major semifinal in 53 major appearances and winning the women's doubles with Shea Suwei. So it really a spectacular tournament and definitely a player who uh, had a well-deserved moment in the sun. Uh, and who knows how longer her career is going to last. It could be she could call it quits. Um, later this year, we don't know, but it, it was so. If, if this was her last Wimbledon, uh, certainly one of the great walk-off moments in Wimbledon history. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. Echo you there. I would say my last winner has to be Nick Kyrgios. Right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, my last winner, and I want to allude to a piece that you did, and I talked about it a little bit earlier, but I wanted to give it its own category. This scheduling at Wimbledon, I know we didn't have much rain this year, and you kind of wrote the piece on this on Tennis with an Axe, so I want to let you take the lead, um, but this is what a major should look like, right? This sort of scheduling, the spread out, everyone's equally rested, we have our heavyweight days. It was just, simply put, the uh, I guess maybe I'm paying more attention to it than I used to, but given the fiasco that was the end of the French, the final weekend of Wimbledon went off without a hitch. Uh, you know, really, the, uh, the the whole fortnight went off with very few problems. I mean, the really the one small problem was that the men's doubles final went on forever, so it <laughs> postponed the women's doubles final from Saturday to Sunday, and it, and it pushed the mixed doubles final from center court uh, to to court one. Uh, but I mean, other than that, I mean, the singles so the singles tournaments were not compromised at all. No profound controversies at all. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, the weather was terrible in Paris, and it was great in, in London, at least in terms of you know, no weather delays. So obviously, not having a weather delay helped. But let's also remember that had there been some weather problems in the second week, the roof over Court 1 would have enabled the gears to continue to turn really well. The, the main thing to remember about Wimbledon, and we saw it this week, is that you didn't have... Uh, irregular rest breaks divided among the women and the men. And at the other three majors, you would have had these irregularities that two of the women's quarterfinals would have had no days off before their semifinal. Uh, you know, a, a major semifinal is a career moment for players, and you want to make sure that they get adequate amount of rest 
heading into a semifinal. You know, fourth round quarterfinal, that's the day when Wimbledon makes the concession in terms of having players play one day and then the next. Uh, but, you know, quarterfinal isn't as big as a semifinal. So if you're going to have a day in which you do play back-to-back days, A, you want it to be earlier rather than later. So Wimbledon is ahead of the other three majors in terms of it never does have zero days off between the quarters and semis. It chooses to do it one round earlier, fourth round quarters. And the other thing that Wimbledon gets right, which we saw here at this tournament, is that it's not imbalanced. You know, it's not as though the top half gets one day off between matches and the bottom half doesn't. Everyone gets the same amount of rest. And so this is why we just didn't have any of these controversies. And let's also point out that whereas at the French Open, you know, Federer Nadal got Chatrier much more than the women did at various rounds. Let's point out that for on several of the first week orders of play at center court, there were two women's matches and one men's match. So Wimbledon, which has been unresponsive to gender concerns in the past, a very evolved and, light, and enlightened schedule this year. So let's just marvel at how few genuine scheduling controversies there were. It comes from the fact that Wimbledon's set schedule, the originally planned schedule, when nothing fundamentally goes wrong, this schedule creates fairness and equity in terms of rest for all the players in both tournaments, and it also gives the women more of a time between their quarterfinal and their Wimbledon semifinal, which is a a really important thing to acknowledge. Completely agree with you, and I want to throw, I, I said that was our last one, one more bonus at you. We saw multiple instances of the fifth set super breaker at 12 all. Small sample size, so it's probably still too soon to say whether that format, good or bad long term. But real quick, initial thoughts. Is it a winner or a loser in terms of a format in your mind? Uh, I'm going to say we need a tiebreaker to decide. And uh, that, that, that goes to this point that... On one hand, the winner, the winning example was the Pliskova-Mukova match, which, you know, it didn't go to a 12-12 tiebreaker because Mukova won 13-11 uh, in, the, uh, in the final set. But let's say that 24th game had gone to Pliskova and there was a tiebreaker. Then the winner of that match in the fourth round on Manic Monday would not have been overly compromised for the quarterfinal. Now, I, one could still argue that Mukova... By playing as much as she did, she was still in trouble against Svitolina in the quarters. But the fact that that tiebreaker was there, it at least gave her a chance. You know, if that match had been 22-20, then Mukova would have been absolutely destroyed uh, heading into the Svitolina match. She wouldn't have put up the decent fight that she did. I mean, she led the first set 5-2, to two, but as that match went on, you know, he, she, she seemed to get more tired. But anyway, that match was still... Against Pliskova, that match did show why it's good to have a 12-12 tiebreaker for most of the tournament. But this is where the tiebreaker is still limited in terms of its application and in terms of its its wisdom. We shouldn't have 12-12 tiebreakers in a Wimbledon final, or we shouldn't have 12. We shouldn't have tiebreakers in the final of any major tournament. The whole the whole point of a tiebreaker to me. Uh, you know, since Jimmy Van Allen created it and since it became widely used at the majors in the early 1970s, the point of that was to avoid a first round or, or third round match, uh, which, you know, goes forever. You know, obviously the type, the inspiration for the tiebreaker, the initial one, 
was that Pancho Gonzalez Charlie Passarell match, uh, first round of Wimbledon 1969. The first set was 24 22. And then there was a 16 14 set and an 11 9 set. So the tiebreaker just was really the, po- the point of the tiebreaker was we can't have these players playing forever in, in one round because the next round is going to be compromised. So rounds one through six at a major. You use a tiebreaker so that you don't compromise the next round. But in a final, there is no next round. And so in a final, I think people would have appreciated uh, that you know Djokovic and Federer being able to just play until the death, play until someone won two straight games and broke the other's serve. So I like the tiebreaker rounds one through six, but I don't like it in a final. And uh, maybe we'll get a, a, a culture change on this. Probably not right away, but maybe if there's another 12-12 Wimbledon final in a few years uh, that minds will begin to change on this. Well, you said it perfectly. No one wants to watch another 70-68 match in the second round. Everyone wants to watch more Federer Djokovic. And so it it makes too much common sense for the ATP to institute it, but that seems like a very common sense reform that could be uh, developed or at the very least accepted by the ATP. Um, All right, with that being said, any final thoughts on this Wimbledon winners and losers thing before we wrap up? Let's just stop and realize that uh, on, the, on the women's side, we've had 12 different semifinalists. So at the U.S. Open, are we going to have 16 different major semifinalists? Uh, I can't recall the last time that happened. And, you know, if, if just one of these first 12 major semifinalists can make a second one, that is a big statement in terms of player of the year honors, especially if it's one of the top tier players who has won a major. So if Barty or Osaka or Halleck makes a second major semifinal and the other two players don't get that far in New York, uh, that will tell us a lot in terms of who is the best WTA player for the year 2019. I completely agree with you. It's going to make this whole summer hardcourt stretch so exciting to watch. Um, with that being said, though, there's still a ton of tennis to talk about, and obviously, if you've missed any of the action, check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. You know the podcast by now. This one, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews, What the Deuce, uh, keeping you guys up to date on all things going on in the tennis world. Uh, Matt, I know you guys at Tennis with an Accent have a very exciting podcast that I believe came out today with Rajiv Ram for all of your fans and our fans to listen to, but beyond that, you know, talk a little bit about that and what you guys have planned this week at Tennis with an accent. Rajiv Ram was very thoughtful in terms of breaking down the Djokovic-Federer final, so he provided some insights there. He also talked about the speed of the Wimbledon grass from his personal observations in his doubles uh, tournament with Joe Salisbury, and he also talked with Sakib about ATP doubles in general, so that's a good listen. Uh, and then Sakib and I also you know, talked after the Rajiv Ram segment on our podcast, so we just ask uh, the Mini Break listeners to uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Um, the other... What's happening later this week, a, a few more big three perspective pieces. I just There's so much more to say. I still have to, to do a few more pieces on Wednesday, and then I have some stuff on Dominic Team and Kay Nishikori. I'm going to talk about Kay Nishikori in a larger historical context. That's coming up Thursday, and then I'm going to do some uh, WTA uh, studies on Friday, and then I'm going to take that day off. On Saturday, and, and just before we wrap up on the podcast, having mentioned everything that's going on at Tennis with an Accent, 
I just want to say, happy Fabio Fanini week. It's the week <laughs> after Wimbledon, Clay 250s. This is the Fanini Festival. I hope you're enjoying. Have some spaghetti. Uh, manja. Slowly transitioning to the Nicholas Jari week, in my opinion, but obviously we <laughs> we, uh, we as fans so appreciative of what you do. Personally, people I am so appreciative of are super producers, Max Flager and Daniel Westoff, who as always have a f- an editing job to do. Uh, but with that being said, again, be sure to check out Matt's website, tennisaccent.com. So much great content up there. But with that being said, for my wonderful co-host, Matt Zemek, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire team at Cracked Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Matt, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, Matt. Mm-hmm.